Hello, welcome back to the EcoTalk podcast. My name is Fiona. I'm Angela. is to start conversations and spark a bigger change within our community. Today, we are going to cover information on vaccines and how viruses shape our world. We have two very special guests to give us some insights, Ms. Kumar and Mr. Negan. So this is a very prevalent topic that we want to talk about during this unprecedented time of how we can all stay safe and create create a better community. Um, we also want to bring any misinformation about vaccines and talk about the science behind it as well as viruses and so we hope we can give you some foundational information that will be useful for all of us to know as individuals. Okay we have a total of seven sections to discuss today. So for our first section we want to talk about um, just some foundational knowledge of how do vaccines work and what goes into a vaccine. Uh, vaccines basically prepare your body to recognize external threats. So it's your own immune system that does the work. But when you get a vaccine, it's usually either a weak version or a dead version of some pathogen. Maybe it's a virus, maybe it's a bacteria. Um, so then your body recognizes what it is, destroys it. And so the next time you get it, and maybe you get a full case of it, your body very quickly goes into action and your immune system suppresses and destroys that pathogen before you uh, have a chance to get really sick. I think, yeah, that's that's really well said. And I think, um, I guess I would just maybe add like, a vaccine is kind of like your body has seen the disease already. So our body has like two ways of dealing with pathogens or diseases when we, when we see them. The first is your, um, sort of your unspecific or your immune system, which basically is the one that gives you the fever and the chills and, and the headache and the, the body aches because that's your body's response to a pathogen. If you take a vaccine, it gives you a weak version or, or in the case of the new mRNA vaccines, it gives you just a piece of the virus that doesn't make you feel sick, but your body can build the immunity to that specific thing so that you don't actually get sick. How are memory cells fighting off reoccurring viruses? So if you, so basically your immune system produces antibodies and those antibodies uh, are remembered by memory cells. So the antibodies are a specific protein that recognizes a virus or, or even a bacteria, any kind of foreign um, thing that comes into your body. And then your body saves that that specific antibody, that specific protein and recognition sequence in a memory cell so that if it sees it again, the memory cell will, will, will say, hey, we have this already, and then it will quickly be able to produce a lot more of the antibodies that will neutralize that pathogen again. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. How can we expound upon why some some doses of vaccines may differ from every year to every three years. So um, some pathogens mutate very quickly and uh, mutate from year to year. Some are endemic all the time in different organisms and some become uh, pandemics when they start spreading uh, from 
from person to person. So it just depends on which type of pathogen you're talking about and how often and how much it mutates so that the vaccines are always trying to keep up with the latest version of the uh, pathogen. Very well put. And speaking of a multitude of viruses, how are these different viruses switching from humans to humans or even animals to humans? So viruses spread through different different ways. For colds and flus, they spread through the air and they spread by you coughing on your hands or sneezing into the air and coughing on your on, on different surfaces so it can be spread through either through the air or by getting onto surfaces uh, or by droplets from your sneezes or coughs um, so basically that's how it goes from person to person it can also be spread through other bodily fluids so if you have close bodily contact with with other people or with animals you can catch va- uh, viruses from them that way too from animals to people that Again, it's similar through through contact or through the air, and the virus has to mutate a little bit usually from the from an animal to be able to infect. And we've had several cases of that. That's why we say like swine flu or bird flu. Those are viruses that are normally endemic to swine or or birds that have now mutated and have been able to infect humans. So, uh, if you cough and those particles go into the air. Viruses are exceptionally small, very, 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 very tiny. And so they can travel some distance in the air. And this is why we came up with rules with like six feet of distance, right? Estimating about how much particles just from breathing or coughing or sneezing can travel in the air. And sneezes and coughs can actually travel much further. But just normal breathing, even air can travel about six meters or sorry, six feet and carry viral particles in the air. Some of these viruses can can survive. They're not alive, but they can survive on surfaces for some period of time, right? Different viruses have different tolerances for that, unless they're destroyed by sunlight, you know, radiation from sunlight, or by oxygen, which is also very corrosive. It can tend to destroy things. Um, and then, yes, so either through um, <clears throat> aerosols, right? Things traveling through the air or through contact or through fluid. Yeah, I guess that's why masks are very effective. Exactly. Masks are masks really stop a lot of the particles. They stop the particles and even some of the aerosols. So aerosols are really tinier droplets of water than than particles and, and little drops droplets when you sneeze or when you cough, those will be caught generally by your mask and even when you're breathing, you're breathing out water vapor and very small, tiny aerosols, which is small, even smaller particles of water that can carry viral particles. So those get caught in your mask. And so that's why masks are effective. And moving on to the other section that we wanted to cover is how have vaccines been effective in the past? So the, the history of vaccines kind of goes back to cowpox in England where uh, a doctor there recognized that milkmaids didn't get cowpox uh, as badly as others people and uh, actually uh, it purposely infected uh, someone with cowpox and then took the scabs from their pox and used it to uh, inoculate to, to provide a vaccine for other patients. And they found, this is where they first figured out that, oh, if you get this disease, cowpox being a less formidable 
form of smallpox, um, you can protect other people from smallpox by doing that. And that's why we call it vaccines, because cow in Spanish is vaca, right? And vaccine comes from cowpox. That's where we originally figured it out. And of course, we've had tremendous uh, success through the years uh, with vaccines, right? In previous centuries, and even today, some places, uh, millions and millions of people have died from infectious diseases, you know, like measles and mumps and rubella. But we have vaccines for all those things uh, today, and hepatitis A and B and diphtheria and tetanus and pertussis and pneumonia and meningitis, and just a lot of things that people don't even think about having these days, you know, typhoid. Um, smallpox has been eradicated in the world. It no longer exists except in laboratories so that we can still study it. Um, another huge one was, you know, when the polio vaccine was uh, founded in the early 50s, it was, it was seen as a miracle, right? That now we have a vaccine that we can prevent people from getting polio. A lot of people used to get polio and some people were crippled and killed by it. And uh, when the vaccine was discovered, it was hailed as, you know, like, wow, finally we have a vaccine to help cure polio. And nobody gets polio anymore in this country. Some places in the world still have polio, sadly. But uh, vaccines, um, yes, there are risks and side effects with vaccines and affect different people differently. But the number of people that they have saved over the years is enormous. We're talking about millions and millions of people that died from these diseases in the past that no longer die because we have childhood vaccines and uh, vaccines that cure these diseases or prevent them. Yeah, I was I was looking at my my own family genealogy um, not too long ago, and and a lot of the families like in the 1800s is like you know they they have seven or eight children and most of them die, so they have you know like birth and death dates that are very close together. Wow. It was probably just from childhood diseases that we have successfully battled using vaccines. Yeah, even when I was younger, kids used to get measles still, but now we have a vaccine for measles, and measles itself isn't hugely dangerous, but it oftentimes kills people because they get pneumonia, because measles spreads through your immune system. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. Over the break, I was pretty fortuitous to receive two of my yearly vaccines, and so now I feel that I'll be safe throughout the year. Yeah, but speaking of uh, getting vaccines, what happens if uh, not enough people are getting vaccinated for a certain disease or virus? How can that kind of hinder the process of immunity? I think we really see that with measles um, is a good example, and also whooping cough these days. So when I was a kid, everybody was getting their measles vaccine and their whooping cough vaccine. Well, at least their whooping cough vaccine. Measles has been more recent, but um, and those diseases became very rare. Um, but now, since the anti-vax movement has come out, probably since the 1990s, we've had a lot of measles outbreaks because people have decided they don't want to get vaccinated against the measles. So they um, now, yeah, in, in various, and especially in some communities, people are starting to get measles again. So we need to have a lot of people vaccinated to, to prevent that. Oh yes, I've heard of the term herd immunity. Yeah, herd immunity is like if everybody is vaccinated, then even if uh, a pathogen shows up, like say somebody travels somewhere and brings something back, so brings back a measles um, germ or a diphtheria germ, they 
most people around them will be vaccinated and so they'll be immune to it. So that's that then the the infection gets stopped there. But just recently at, at Disneyland and at UCLA, they've had measles outbreaks because there have been enough people unvaccinated that that germ that gets brought in finds other hosts and then it can spread. So that's how you, you get an outbreak is by um, if you have if you have enough unvaccinated people in a population, then the germ can spread. Whereas if you have a high enough level of vaccination and they think about 70% usually is enough, although that's a little low for something that's as contagious as measles. And it looks like Delta strain of COVID is also getting more and more contagious, maybe not quite as much as measles now, but but we have to have a high percentage of people immune, uh, immune that gives us herd immunity so, so that the the germ will have a hard time finding another host to infect. I recently tuned into a Bill Nye episode talking about vaccine hesitancy and how most people can be somewhere in the middle. They're not exactly against vaccinations, but they're not too eager to get it because of misinformation. I think it's more and more imperative that people realize that their vaccination affects others as well. It goes along with what Mr. Megan said about eradicating viruses and how that may not be possible until we achieve herd immunity, which is majority vaccination. Yeah, based on my, on my research, it says that vaccines um, have helped two to three million lives yearly. That's significant. Small co- smallpox killed millions and millions of people last century, and finally we were able to eliminate it. And moving on to, to another section, we also want to talk about how variants are generated and what exactly a is a variant because I had like a lot of peers who didn't know what the Delta variant was and what it meant, what it meant for the pandemic. So what is a variant? So every time DNA or RNA copies itself, um, there's usually slight errors in the copy. Uh, DNA does a really good job of copying itself. So there's not as many errors, but there's a few. RNA is not as good at copying itself. So it has more variants and more errors. Sometimes the errors are bad because that variant can no longer survive because of copying errors, but sometimes it creates a new strain that might could potentially be even more dangerous. So it's just a natural process of copying DNA, copying RNA, uh, errors occur, and sometimes they don't allow that organism or virus to survive, but sometimes they do create new variants that could potentially be more dangerous or just different in some way. And your body can't recognize how to fight them as well. In order for variants to come, the virus has to reproduce because the errors that it makes only happen when it reproduces itself. So if the if we stop the virus from reproducing and getting new hosts, and it reproduces millions of times in each host, so the more people that get sick with COVID and that, that, that have COVID, the more chance there is that a variant will come uh, which is a mis- basically a, a mistake uh, that in the reproduction and that variant will come and if the variant is successful like delta it will be more contagious and won't spread if it's less successful then it will just die out but um yeah that's really the concern of people not being vaccinated and and um because we allow it to spread and reproduce and then variants can come yeah 
That's a really good response. And moving on to section four, how, how, how can certain viruses that are more dormant be good for life and uh, sometimes uh, crucial for shaping? So viruses, variety in general is good for life, right? Because variety produces many different variants that then when the environmental conditions change, maybe some of those variants are better suited for that environment and can survive. And through the history of life on Earth, we suspect that viruses have infected different organisms in different times and, and injected part of their DNA or RNA into these new organisms, which created variety. So uh, they estimate that humans have about as much as 4% of our DNA is from a viral source at some point during our evolutionary history. So, even something as uh, that can be as deadly as viruses has had their had its benefits through the course of history, and today we use viruses uh, to do our own work by inserting genetic code to maybe possibly cure certain diseases. We use a polio virus to help defeat brain cancer. So um, all life is interconnected. Some life forms have negative consequences involved with them and but all together we're all interconnected and um, there's a lot of positive benefits to life forms and even viruses. Yeah that reminds me how in this Kumaris class we were talking of if viruses were alive or not and it's a debate isn't it? Um, there can be some debate some some scientists say the main argument against them being alive is they don't have metabolism right they don't use energy they don't maintain homeostasis. They don't grow and develop on their own, and they can't reproduce it on their own. But some some people might argue, well, they just it's part of their stage of life that they only are alive when they are actively part of a cell and reproducing as part of a cell. But most scientists, I would say, they're not alive because they don't meet all those characteristics of life I mentioned. Yeah, I remember doing uh, what. One of one of my article reviews on how viruses can actually contribute to diversity and diversity in life, and that was pretty kind of interesting to learn because oftentimes we put like viruses, like especially with COVID nineteen, as oh this is a terrible terrible thing that only hurts life. We I wish viruses never existed, but yeah, this was pretty interesting to learn about. It's really interesting because viruses. I mean, there's a, a, several different types of viruses, and some of them have um, you know, actually have RNA as their genetic code instead of DNA. So most life forms have DNA, and viruses. Um, a lot of there's a, a whole class of viruses called retroviruses, which have RNA, and they they from them we've learned how things how things can get inserted into the DNA and changed around and switched around, and that switching around introduces variability, as Mr. Nagin was saying, which is um, really important to life because if you don't have variability, you can't adapt to new situations, which is really important to survival. We also have um, viruses that attack bacteria. So, you know, most bacteria are helpful or benign, but some bacteria are harmful. And at the same time, there's viruses out there destroying bacteria. So who knows what the overall balance is that it may be very important that there's viruses in the world killing bacteria. Yeah, it's all about that balance too. Important to be able to listen to people and hear what their concerns are so that we can um, 
helps them understand really what science has to say and why it might be more important to be vaccinated. And especially with having uh, good uh, mandates like keeping your mask on and also track tracking uh, where uh, which students are sitting next to each other in classrooms, I think is also important because I think we've started to get a little bit more lackadaisical because we start thinking, oh, the pandemic's over, but still, uh, it's a, still, it's still going on and people are still getting COVID. And so I think that's a good reminder to still stay safe regardless. You know, all, all vaccines and things you put in your body have potential side effects and might affect different but we kind of need to weigh like how important is individual freedom compared to how important is public safety. Um, and that can be a tough debate, right? Because we do value our freedoms, but of course, public safety is very important also. I mean, we don't allow people to just go around and cough on people or sneeze on people or spit on people. But uh, that is actually happening at a lower level if you don't wear a mask or if you're not vaccinating, you're potentially spreading a virus to somebody else, you know, not not meaningfully, but you just can't help it because you're breathing and spreading that virus unless you, you know, get vaccinated. I think if I can just add also, like, one, one thing that, that helped me understand at the beginning why we should wear masks and, and, and use masks is because we are, we're not just protecting, I'm not, I don't wear a mask really to protect myself. I wear a mask to protect my community. That's right. And when I go into a grocery store, I feel that, you know, those people have to work there all the time and they are exposed to so many people. And so I wear a mask out of respect for them because I want to protect them in case I happen to have been exposed. So I think if we all think about taking care of our community and taking care of each other, that really helps us with um, some of the inconveniences of, of being in a pandemic. And I'm so glad we can actually come to school because we are taking care of each other and, and I'm really happy about that. Kind of like, you know, people have a choice to like stop at a stop sign or stoplight or not, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if they decide not to do that, they're putting other people at risk and themselves at risk. Um, so again, that's that would be an individual freedom. Like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't stop at stoplights. That's for other people. But some cases we need to put public safety first, right? So. Um, you have to weigh, you know, where, where's the appropriate balance between individual freedoms and public safety. I also like to compare different sources and see, you know, like, what, who published this and where did they publish it and who paid for their research. Um, right. Those are, those are things to look at when you're considering sources. And also, yeah, who's going to benefit from, um, from a piece of information as well. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think if I can mention a couple of other misinformation things that that I that I thought of, um, one is that a, a lot of people think that mRNA vaccines, which are the most effective vaccines against COVID, are very new and untested. And in fact, we've really been doing looking at mRNA technology since the 1990s, and it's. And they've been, we're looking at how can mRNA be be used to fight cancer, um, and in SARS one, which is um, the original COVID, they really have been intensively looking at using mRNA vaccines for this type of illness, and so so there actually has been quite a lot of research being done on mRNA vaccines. 
So I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. And I think with that being said, uh, in general, just stay safe and be well informed. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Negan and Ms. Kumar for joining us on this podcast and giving us so many great insights, not only for uh, us and Eco Club, but also uh, for any listener and our school community. I just hope that... Uh... You know, we've defeated diseases in the past, so hopefully we'll turn the corner at some point on COVID and uh, get back to some level of normality. So thank you so much for tuning into this podcast and stay safe. Yeah. Better safe than sorry. Get vaccinated and masks save lives.